fungus. Feed the 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 fungus. Hey kids, what's happening? This is your host, Hacker Mike, and I'm just driving around the car, and I thought I would just drop you a line. Drop a little voice note into the podcast. You never know when you need these things, when you want them. But uh, I, I must have mentioned this idea before, but I'm just going to mention it again and again. Well, first of all, there's this great video for the secrets of pi hidden in the prime numbers from oh, one blue, three brown. And uh, he said that the amazing fact that pi is in there is what made Leibniz uh, quit studying law and, and dedicate himself to math. <clears throat> and it has to do... Well, he showed it two ways to do it. One is just do a uh, arctan or something like that. And uh, an integral. But he also showed a different way to do it. has to do with a sequence of numbers and the count of count of primes underneath a certain number. In any case, um, I don't remember all the details, but what I'm trying to say here is that none of these discoveries would be made if a computer was calculating everything. Because a computer is blind. It's not looking at all these different steps. It's not finding the beautiful things in the numbers. Only if you calculate it by hand and actually look at all of the numbers does your mind do the pattern matching and do the seeking. And that's my message today. As I said, well, let's... Let's um, train a neural network to do the pattern matching and the seeking of different numbers to look for pi to look for different constants right to look for different patterns in the numbers um, and just see if it can find any when we're doing calculations so I thought that would be interesting we talked about this before I just wanted to throw that out there that uh, it's the human mind that does the pattern matching, the introspection. It's the human mind, not the computer mind, that, that will see the beauty in the math. The computer doesn't know what it's calculating doesn't have an idea if the calculation is right or wrong, what's the purpose of a calculation? 
you know. And even if you were to train it to search for some number, it still doesn't know that it's searching for the number. Right? Even if you get it to pretend to act like a human, it doesn't know that it's acting like a human. You see? It it lacks the self-awareness, let's call it. And, I mean, maybe we're lacking the self-awareness ourselves. You know? Maybe we're just the simulation pretending to be smart, pretending to know these things, and we actually don't know them. But that's what the beauty of um, prime numbers uh, are. Well, the, the beauty is, the beauty of prime numbers is that beautiful part of prime numbers is that um, we um, we can definitely calculate them and we know exactly what they are it kind of gives you that security but then of course the question is does computer know what a prime number is? Does it even care? You know, is it not just something that helps people? And anyway, these are just some different ideas. I'm going to go grab my microphone. I'll be, I'll be back in a second. Mic check, one, two. Mic check, one, two. Okay, this is my new headset, or my old headset. I get a lot of miles on this headset. So we have never done this before, actually sitting and having you <laughs> read you something. Um, <clears throat> I'm reading about the formal education of Euler in Basel, and it was he was saying, they were saying how uh, old Bernoulli was single-handedly turned Basel into a center of mathematics. Otherwise, it was very bad. And I think one of the younger Bernoullis was um, studying with Euler. So, here we go. So, okay, I'll just read this um, section here. Many parents engaged private tutors for further instruction. Most of these were students from the university, and many of them combined enthusiasm for learning with a sensitivity towards students. In 1715, Paul Euler, his father, hired the private tutor Johannes, Johann Jakob, Burkhardt, a 24-year-old theologian, with a tolerable background in mathematics. At the time, Burkhardt, who would become pastor in Klein Hüningen, in 1721, and Oldlingen in 1732, was supporting Johann Bernoulli in arguments with Brooke Taylor and other members of the Royal Society of London over which was superior, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, Leibniz's differential calculus, or Isaac Newton's method of fluctuations. So this was the fight between Leibniz and... Um, and, Bern and uh, Newton that Euler was born into. 
the Germans versus the English. This was also the time of the controversy over whether Leibniz or Newton deserved priority for the invention of calculus. Bernoulli publicly refused to engage in the priority dispute, but was deeply involved to the point of faking evidence. In 1713, Leibniz had released a letter from Bernoulli without giving his name that argued against Newton's interpretation of the higher differential. This is great. Bernoulli despised the quote-unquote scurvy English and quote-unquote English buffoons for accusing Leibniz of plagiarism. Afterwards, Bernoulli demonstrated that finding ballistic curves, that for finding the ballistic curves, so the real meaning of um, the real meaning of uh, math is war, right? Is creating projectiles. That's why boys love uh, math, right? Ballistic curves. That's like the original application of math. Ballistics. Leibnizian differential calculus was better than Newton's fluctuations. Burkhard must... Let me see, make sure this... Burkhard must have influenced Euler's education, but exactly is not clear. Reporting his death, Daniel Bernoulli, who became Euler's closest friend for many years, referred to him simply as Mag Magni Euleri Pre Preceptor in Mathematis, the teacher of the great Euler in mathematics. Young Euler displayed diverse interests. His concentration on mathematics still lay in the future, yet to have taught mathematics to Euler remains Burkhardt's greatest achievement. So I thought that was an interesting paragraph that Bernoulli was faking evidence for um, Leibniz. And that there was a fight. And there always will be a fight, I think, in mathematics. And that's also why it's um, very... Uh, racist and bigoted and all that because it's used to smack people over the head in an unequal way. Like the whole idea of mathematics is unequal. Okay. So I'm skipping some pages and then he's going to, I'm going to talk about his Magister Arteo, Master of the Arts degree. His classmate Johann II, Jean II Bernoulli, Jean is Johann, hmm? was three years younger, also earned his master's degree. Here we go. At the graduation session of, the, of that day, Euler gave a public lecture in Latin comparing the natural, natural philosophy of René Descartes to that of Isaac Newton and indicating the consequences of each. It was probably in consultation with Burckhardt and Johann von Bernoulli that he had chosen this important and timely topic for his master's lecture. An intense rivalry, rivalry centering at the Royal Academy of Science in Paris was newly underway between the Cartesians and the Newtonians for the supremacy in the science in continental Europe. Against criticisms from both Catholics and Protestants that its animate, animate automatons and mechanistic philosophy had led to fatalism. Cartesian sciences had come late in the 17th century to dominate at European universities, supplanting the varieties of Arist 
feeling and thought. So the Cartesians um, believed in animate automatons and mechanistic and mechanics. And that was considered fatalism. Okay. But it still came over in the universities. So these are the meme wars where the meme of Descartes is now taking over. So, Descartes' Discourse de la Méthode of 1637, so that was 100 years before, or 80 years before, well, that was 1640, and now they're in 1720, so 20 years, uh, 80 years before, set forth a rationalism founded in radical exhaustive doubt that he intended as a program for pruning away unfounded beliefs and discovering new and reliable knowledge. So, as truth invulnerable to doubt, he posited, Ye pense dans ye suis. Um, to be pensive, I, I pense, therefore I am. Je suis. Pense, I guess, is to be pensive or to think, which is expressed in Latin as cognito ergo sum, and is generally translated as I think, therefore I am. From that one assurance, Descartes held that he could proceed to expand the range of factual knowledge, achieving results that would stand up to even the most severe doubting. His new epistemology, epistemology had revolutionary implications. The Cartesian rational method surpassed the Aristotelian syllogism, designed as a means of confirming knowledge. Descartes freely used deduction, while his main illustrations for his methods in dioptrics, analytic geometry, and meteorology were mathematical. So, basically, epistemology is the study of knowing what we know. And um, this is a revolution. This is a meme revolution that occurred in 1637, and it's going to hit Euler and other people 100 years later, 80 years later. So, Descartes' Le Monde, with its section titled Traite de l'Homme, which is this, uh, a treatise on the human, was completed by 1633, and his Principia Philosophia followed in 1644. Together, these two works gave a comprehensive account of the mecha mechanistic natural philosophy. <clears throat> In his universe, the essence of matter was extension, and the fundamental phenomena was matter and motion. He posited that motion imparted by God breaks matter into three gradations. Agglomerates of the largest size form the planets. Middle size comprises liquids, fires, and gases, including the atmosphere. And the smallest, most minute pieces found in the interstices are components of heat and light. These most subtle pieces fill the ether throughout space, making the universe a plenium. His corpuscles of matter differed from the atoms of the ancient Greeks by being infinitely divisible. Rejecting the occult qualities of the scholastics, Descartes held that change in motion could be caused only by direct mechanical contact between bodies, which demands establishing the laws of collision. 
he maintained that the quantity of matter multiplied by the velocity, his measure of force or momentum was conserved. Central to his science is the theory of impact. Descartes' refusal to accept the vacuum and action at distance put him at odds with the mechanics of Galilei and Kepler. Largely because he denied any void, Descartes rejected the absolute time and space. Like his, this reminds me of um, Wolfram Alpha. Somehow. So he didn't believe in um, gravity, basically. Like his predecessors, he separated terrestrial from celestial physics. In his theory, vortices or whirlpools of ether of different sizes and speed filled the heavens, accounting for celestial motions, including with difficulty Kepler's three laws of planetary motion. In his books, discarded physics were largely qualitative, but his, in his, course, his correspondence, particularly with Marin Mersin, I think he's the Mersin Primes, was directed towards emerging mathematical physics. His main illustrations for his method and discourse had been had been mathematical in dioptrics and meteorology, as well as employing analytical geometry. <laughs> Within Descartes' natural philosophy, dualism meant the mind and matter were separate, only connected by the pineal gland. Wow. So that's Descartes, and now Newtonian. So he's... Um, so this is what Euler was studying at the time, like contrasting Newton with uh, Descartes. Newtonian science is based primarily on the Princip Principia Mathematica of 1687, which came after, along with the optics of 1704, so that's relatively new. So it's like the new English guys trying to upset the French. Newton's Principia gave his three laws of motion and incorporated into a general general dynamics, a science that he had systematized, Kepler's three planetary laws, Galileo's law of freefall. For the force that was in opposition to Christian Huygens' centrifugal force pulling away from the center, Newton coined the word centripetal, moving towards the center. I guess that's gravity. While Aristotelians defined rest as the only natural state, Newton added the preservation of no motion in a straight line. He rejected the Cartesian concepts of space and time are relative, positing and said they are absolute. Well, now we know there are, they are relative, don't we? Newton's Principa was the first work to unify, on a theoretical level, celestial and terrestrial physics, which he accomplished under the inverse square law of gravitational attraction, the inverse square, 1 over n squared, and his dynamics provided for the first basis, for, first physical basis for Copernican astronomy. So you have Kepler, Galileo, Huygen, and, Cap and Copernican. Although the principle made use of Euclidean geometrical format, Newton employed the new, his new fluctuation calculus to reach some results. In methodology, he and John Locke propounded critical empiricism. Newton's principle marks the apex 
of what has been called the scientific revolution. So the apex is 1687, 300 years ago. Newton's optics gave the corpuscular theory of light, so thus uh, the uh, particle, or corpus, giving it a body, accepted the existence of a vacuum, posited that the universe is almost entirely a void. In the theory of matter, Newton's Newton accepted automatism from the ancients, holding that matter is ultimately composed of hard and indivisible and passive atoms. The optics had almost a, a, an impact, as great an impact as had the Principa, which was uh, 20 years later, the optics. After the 1720s, so 20 years after the optics was published, and this is when Euler was going to school in the 1720s. He got his bachelor in 1722. Newton's theories of optics dominated the Western Europe. His Tractatus de Quadratura Curveum, the treatise on the quadrature of curves, one of two appendix to optics, presented the exposition of the fluctuation co fluxional calculus that Newton had invented, but lacked satisfactory satisfactory foundations. These were developed by others over the next two centuries. Newton had set aside the use of infinitesimals for the fluctuants. Two essential terms of his new calculus were fluent and fluctuation. Fluxion. Having a strong sense of continuous motion in time, Newton assumed that such motion propagates mathematical quantities analogous to a moving point tracing a curve. Each of the flowing quantities or variables he called a fluent. The velocity or rate of change of the fluent is a fluxation, a fluxion, and the fluent is expressed by the x, the dot, acting over an infinitely brief time in the moment O, it is OX. This is Newton's uh, dot notation for differentiation. The fl flu fluxion is the original term for what is today called a derivative and remains dependent on time. That's dx over dt. He called it ox. Euler had probably not, probably had not yet examined the higher mathematics of the Tracticus. It did not know Newton's extensive studies of alchemy. Okay. His master's lecture located Euler within the chief current in the development of 18th century science. The diffusion, confirmation, or criticism, and mathematical articulation of Newton's dynamics and optics. He was to spend the rest of his life contributing to these subjects. In the 1720s, Newtonian science was encountering opposition on the continent, primarily at the Paris Academy. There was a continuing debate over whether attraction was an occult quality or a general law of nature. Now, I'm just going to insert myself here. Yesterday we were talking about occult qualities and magic and all that, and saying that occult meaning hidden, that there could be hidden factors that we don't even know about, just like there are uh, hidden primes that we have yet to discover over time. Maybe there's going to be hidden factors of the mind or soul that we just don't know. 
and that we're uncovering them piece by piece, just like we're uncovering primes, but we'll never know all of them. It might take infinite time to discover them all. And therefore they remain hidden, just like the primes. Most of the primes remain hidden, because we only discovered a couple trillion of them or whatever. We still don't know them all. Okay, so occult. The precision of Newtonian dynamics was challenged at the tides, the shape of the planet Earth, the orbits of the comets, planetary and lunar motion, fluid dynamics. Until the mid-1730s, Paris Academy astronomer Jacques Cassini's geodetic, geodetic measurements were said to refute Newton's proof of the shape of the Earth. Cassini, Bernoulli, and the Cartesians now questioned and found fault with Newtonian science, impeding its general acceptance for at least a decade. But on the continent, the Dutch physicist William Williams Gravesande, the author of the two-volume Physicaeus Elementa Mathematica, Experimentis Confirmata, Siva Introductio ad Philosophiam Newtonianum, Mathematical Elements of Natural Philosophy Confirmed by Experiments or an Introduction to Newtonian Philosophy, 1721, was essential to making the University of Leiden, Holland, a citadel of Newtonian science. Euler's master's lecture did not review the methodology, mathematics, and natural philosophy of Leibniz. The comparison of Cartesian with Newtonian science was itself an imposing subject. But in universities in German-speaking Europe, Leibnizian thought was to be the main competitor to that of Newton. Yeah, because it's German. This is like racism or nationalism or whatever, right? Memeism. Not invented heroism. Propagation of memes and the fight over the brain. John I Bernoulli had likely begun to convey Leibnizian doctrines, two of which Euler described in his Dissertatio Physica del De Sono, Dissertation on the Physics of Sound, Euler's response to Leibniz's thoughts was to be selective, accepting some aspects and rejecting others. Likely he wanted more time to develop a view that, is, that partly differed from the position of Bernoulli and accorded, to his, and accorded to his own religious beliefs. So, yeah, that's interesting, huh? Um... So I thought I would share that with you. And it um, looks like we're doing pretty good here on the recording. I'm waiting for my son to be finished with his jujitsu any time now. Leonard's Leonhard Leonard is Leonhard. Increasing attention to mathematics and natural philosophy did not please his father, who obliged him to register in the theology faculty in 1723 in, for, in preparation for taking holy orders, because I think his father was also a priest. In the theology division, Euler studied under Samuel Werenfels, a professor of theology and the dean of the school, and Samuel Batiga, who taught Greek. 
Varenfelds was also among Paul's professors, his father's professors. In 1696, Johann Wettstein, professor of Greek, had moved to the law facility, and so he did not teach Euler, his nephew or younger cousin, Johann Kaspar Wettstein, was to become a friend of the adult Euler primarily through correspondence. The theology curriculum included Protestant theology and classical humanities, but no longer Latin, Hebrew, and ancient Greek. Euler was later to confess in his autobiography he did not make much progress in any of these subjects. He now displayed his eidetic memory by reciting long passages from Vir Virgil's Aeneid, which contains more than 9,500 verses and which he knew entirely by heart. Even at the age of 70, he could cite the beginning and closing words on each page of the text he had read as a young man. So he had a perfect visual memory. i got to turn this um, air conditioning on here. Theology curriculum allowed Euler to continue to study mathematics, an opportunity he eagerly seized. Now, I'm reading here from Leonard Euler, Mathematical Genius and Enlightenment, from Ronald S. Callinger. This is a brand new book, Princeton University Press, 2016. First paperback printing, 2019. And, um,. This is a crazy book. It's uh, some 600 pages. And it's really like one of the first books. They said they have 80 books prepared for his work. Uh, what does he say? attempts to offer the first detailed and comprehensive account in the context of Euler's life research, computations, and professional interactions that centers on his achievements in calculus and analytical mechanics. The growing body in print of primary sources by Euler, many long inaccessible, together with the secondary literature on him and his research, are making this possible. Central to the first effort is the near completion of more than 80 large volumes of Euler's Opere Omnia collected works. Series 1 on mathematics comprises 29 volumes. Series 2 on mechanics and astronomy comprises 31 volumes. Series 3, 12 volumes in physics. 4 will have 8 volumes. And a planned internet database provisionally called the Euler Heritage will make this accessible in his remaining manuscript catalog, including 12 notebooks totaling 4,000 pages. It has taken more than a century to near the finish of Opera Omnia. It's just incredible what this guy has produced. Ennestrom lists 866 of Euler's publications, including 18 books. Today, each has a number indicating its ordered place from the time of appearance, 
in the Enestrom Index. The Euler Archive has made the originals of almost all these writings available on the internet. Euler publications span five languages. Most are in Latin and French, some in German and Russian. Euler himself translated one book from English into German. Research on Euler requires an expertise literally in the first three of these five languages. The bibliography in the present work indicates that confidence in Italian, Spanish, Chinese, and Japanese also helps. The range, depth, and volume of Euler's work makes it highly unlikely that any one scholar can master all the fields that he pursued. In describing, explaining, and summarizing what Euler achieved, the present book is a scientific bibliography, but it is not a scientific treatment exploring the central concepts at length. An exhaustive treatment of Euler's accomplishment is not yet possible where there is still much to learn about him, about them. Instead, this book presents a synoptic study of the full scope of his research. It's just crazy. It's just crazy what this guy did. Now, the one guy was saying that he was like a miner. Mining for gold. Okay. Despite his... Dis let's go back to the book. So, despite his discouragement in early mathematical classes, Euler's interest in these subjects and the subject of the theoretical natural knowledge in general had deepened. Okay, my son's ready. Hey, Gant! Okay, I gotta go. Okay, guys. I got some time to kill, so we can talk. So today's gonna... Oh, I remember I was talking about... So I was listening to the No Agenda show, love the No Agenda show, the uh, podcasting 2.0, and they were talking about um, client side, they were struggling with the concept of how to enforce the split that's dedicated, that's dictated by the, by the podcasting index, or the SATs, for the payment splits. And um, I was thinking about this, and uh, they were talking about, you know, being good citizens and whether an app would slavishly uh, implement what is given or if the user could change it. And um, I was thinking, my first thought was, well, if you made it server side, that you would send the money to an address and that address would split it up between the people. That would be good. And then I thought, what if it was a smart contract and the smart contract could be executed anywhere so that the podcast address would be, the podcast address would be, um, a smart contract. So when you're sending, you're streaming your stats, sats, you stream them to a smart contract and the smart contract would be auditable 
and it would say how to split up those sats. Um, I suppose that the episode could contain its own contract that would say, well, this segment of the podcast contains, um, this segment of the podcast contains material from this author so that the actual clipping and editing of the show becomes some kind of smart contract to say, so to say. So that could be embedded into the actual uh, episode. Okay, let's see who's writing to me. Just troubleshooting. There's a lot of mud here. Oh my god, I'm not gonna walk here. This is like a uh, a motorcycle trail. I'm not gonna walk here. So I'm just multitasking here, guys. Sorry about that. So basically, if you edit, If you edit the if you edit a podcast and clip pieces together, you could say that each of these streams is bound by a certain contract, and then when you mix them in, um that would be embedded so actually the playing and this is coming down to the playing of the podcast is actually a smart contract so when you're composing the episode you're going to be mixing in multiple elements right and let's just say that someone let's just say that someone is um using some software to do the most amazing editing, right? And maybe they could choose between different conditions on using that software. A part of the condition would be the resulting work that a small percentage of the sats would go to the company. So that that would be passed through into the the music clip And that music clip would then be passed through into the podcast episode. So when you play it, um, now the user is, is, when you play it, then those sats would be distributed according to the smart contract. So the user is completely free to choose whether they want to send sats to the smart contract or if they want to send the sats somewhere else or do their own split. You see, they don't have to execute your smart contract. That's their choice. And if they do choose to do it, then you provide them with an execution platform that would do it. And I think it could be executed even locally. It doesn't have to be executed on the server side because 
if you frame it that they're making the choice to run your contract or they could choose their own contract or they can make a derivative contract then um, that would enable their freedom I think that's the way to go um, I'm just trying to frame this into a way that makes sense so I'm going to just put this clip out here as a bonus clip because I'm sure you don't want to listen to the rest of my podcast, but I'll also include it in my latest episode. <sighs> okay, then. Take care. Hey, Mike, I just sent you a spreadsheet of um, right triangles that really has a lot of variation in, in uh, size dimension, but they're all integers. So, check it out. Okay, kids. Now it's time for the main event of the day, the walk. It's 9.30 at night, 9.33 on Saturday the 8th of May. Tomorrow's Mother's Day. So, uh, getting my steps in. I already did quite a bit of moving today and carrying. We deconstructed shelving and tore down um, plastic vinyl curtains from the office sold three tables, three huge metal tables that were picked up. And HEPA filters, two huge HEPA filters, which are nice air filters from the office. So, It's, um, it was quite a busy day. We took my kids to jujitsu. And, um, I didn't really get too much time to learn. But, um, We looked at some questions of triangles today. I wrote a little Python script. <clears throat> that um, asked the question of A squared plus B squared equals C squared, and then looked if A, B, or C were prime. And I found that there was two sides that could be prime. Like a two, three, five triangle, I think. Or three, four, five. But not any with all three sides were being prime.
having some coffee. I took it. I was just sleeping. But I got up to do my walk. And uh, what else did we do? I started reading some blog post about um, the relationship between pi and primes. Research to do. But I really enjoyed yesterday's little talk, and I had a real epiphany while doing it. I want to thank you for joining me on that. I know it's been a rough ride, it's been very rough these last couple of months just going over numbers and um, I hope it will all be worth it in the end the whole town is sleeping and I'm just walking around at night time in the dark Oh, the stars are out finally. I get to see my friends, the stars. I haven't seen them in so long. These guys got a fire pit going on outside. So I might just uh, shut up for a bit. I could even put it on pause. Amazing that pause key, huh? Just pause the recording. We should do that more often. It's like a basic editing tip. Pause the recording. Pause the time. Um, well, I was able to check out while I was waiting for my son's jujitsu this morning, or actually before jujitsu, there was some, we were there half an hour early, so. I, um. checked out some some areas that I haven't explored yet with a car we saw this neat housed in veranda thing like a screened house that was pretty neat screened in house like this big white house if you look at the 
the bonus episode, season four, episode four, I put a picture of it there. Um, it's near some hotel. It looks like an old building, though. I assume it's because of the mosquitoes. That's good coffee. Yeah, so I guess I could talk a little bit and give you a little background on this whole podcasting 2.0 payment system that I've been learning about, that Adam's been proposing. And um, I didn't get any feedback on my suggesting this idea to him today. No reaction at all, silence. So, we'll see what happens with that. But, um, in any case, I'm just gonna document some of my ideas here. And I guess no one's gonna listen to me. Tom Woods was talking about that the other day. He's like, the amount of people that listen to them will fit into a phone booth. And I've got the audience. So I guess I don't have the audience. I haven't been building up an audience. And, um, I guess we started out in an unsustainable manner in some way. But it's okay to be marginalized. It's okay. We're going to just continue on in our little world. And I'm still getting my steps in, still getting my walks in. And um, we'll see what happens. So just to give you an overview. So the idea came was, there's a system called Sphinx Chat, where you chat and you pay with Bitcoin in the Lightning Network. And um, what they're doing is they're creating a way to pay for podcasts. And I talked about this in the past, but I'll just review it all. They're creating a way to pay for podcasts by saying, portion every time you listen 
every second or every minute or whatever, a couple of Satoshis will be sent out. And there's a payment option in the podcast feed that um, specifies the addresses of where to send and how to split it. And they were discussing the details of that. And they're talking about a whole way to handle author's rights and payment and all that stuff. And then they were talking about how to restrict people from messing with those ratios and whether or not the users and I, I that really offended me because they're talking about people being good citizens or not good citizens and whether they use the app or not and I realized what they're talking about is a smart contract really and I like that idea and I've been thinking about that today um where basically the entire feed of a podcast well there's some smoke in the air some haze the entire running of a let's say a podcast server like the infrastructure every all of the compete the parts all of the server components that play a role in the infrastructure, hosting, storage, and all of that. What is that? Some animal running over there, scurrying. Uh, looks like a fox, or no, that's a possum. I see it very vaguely on, on the horizon. Could be a fox or a cat. It's very low, whitish. <clears throat> so, let's get back. So we have this whole infrastructure, like storage, compute, networking, all these different parts that play a role. Now, if we monetized all of that, and you were to pay for the download and the streaming when you use it and also all the contributing authors you know this might actually make sense smart contracts for streaming of content but also for editing Paying people either now or in the future as a percentage. You pay them upfront or you pay them in real time. And all of that could be bound together into a humongous equation that is a smart contract. 
so everyone would get a slice. For all the different roles that you play. Even, as I mentioned, you know, someone has some music editing software or some instrument samples. that's used to make some music or even I come up with some algorithm that's used where I patent the bit and every time you use a bit you gotta pay me a little bit so I mean this might be worthwhile actually prototyping or building distributed smart contracts for content delivery and payment of contributing people and services when when it's actually used. Well, it would definitely solve the whole hosting of episodes problem. Because you could either pay up front to have your host, your episode hosted and then people would pay, pay you back when you um, when they listen. And if nobody listens then eventually you're going to go to the spam bucket. being a pariah or being an unwanted individual, a spammer someone who just speaks their mind it's not easy and I think some of it people not wanting to mention me not wanting to be associated with me not wanting to listen to me being shunned. I mean, first of all, if you have your own ideas, and maybe they're not even ripe yet, it makes you risky. People don't want to be around something when it blows up. I understand that. So, you got to be willing to fund yourself. which is what we're doing here. I think the best part is, for me, I found a balance between my podcasting and my walks and my life where it all fits together. And now, if I can work on this idea of a smart contract I mean there's already people doing that for 
micropayments for, um, it's not Satoshis, it's micropayments for uh, Internet of Things, and we might consider this for micropayments for memory usage, right, or resources, even just allocations, and, um, The compiler allocates resources. We're going to actually get back into the compiler now soon. Now that we've attacked a little bit. So I started reading into the, um, or listening into, reading into the uh, paper that was published with the Quantum. Um, the Quantum Entanglement for the, um, the solver. And basically, they were talking about a game two people competing in a game but he was talking about reformatting the game as a form of answering questions about the halting problem and basically so I don't understand if it goes over up to and can solve the halting I think they've reduced the halting problems complexity a certain level of a quantum. I have to read it again. I'm just starting to understand it. But they've, um, it has to do with recursive grammars, different measures of complexity. showing that one type of complexity is equivalent to the other. So we're going to take some, some time to, uh, to get to that point where we can understand that. And you know, I have read through so much computer science in my life. I just don't have that perfect memory that eidetic memory that Euler has had. I don't have the perfect recall, the organization. I'm lacking in many ways. But I definitely have some experience in this. And we're going to need some time to go through it all. And I feel like I'm finally mature enough in my 40s, mid-40s, to even attempt to reach a new level of understanding.
not too late. Everyone's life takes a different path. And as long as you're alive, it's never too late to learn. My dad's even getting into these triangles. He's sending me um, tables of triangles he's doing in Google Sheets now. And I've been looking into that with him. So we'll have more to report on that. And thanks, Dad, for joining me in my in the mathematics, the fun. So, so we were taking stabs into that, and um, I, I made an accident. I was doing um, an equation of uh, a eight. A raised to A plus B raised to B. When does that equal? Um, C squared. I made a mistake. But I realized that there might be some other interesting identities out there. So it might be um, C, the root of the logarithm base, or the root of, um, of A plus B. So it's not the square root that it would be raised to the two. If A is raised to A and B is raised to B, then A plus B, the C would be probably raised to A plus B. So we'd want to find that root. I think that could be an interesting identity. I don't know, have no idea what it would mean. And I guess you could do threes, a to the third plus b to the third equals c to the third. Like, who's ever looked at that? When does that hold? I keep on raising the numbers, but even having different powers. So that'd be an interesting thing to scan, but it just produced some humongous numbers. And I'm surprised how the computer is able to handle those.
Well, today we're just going to do a short walk. I'm going to turn around soon. I'm not going to go all the way to the university. We already have a whole bunch of steps today. We're just going to go down to the stream, the source of life, the hydrosphere, the separator. I looked at the um, map. It is the major stream that separates everything. Just one big branch. I think it might be the Asapunk or whatever it is. And it kind of disappears and it's been forced underwater, underground. It's got different branches and feeders. I need to get the FEMA map or some hydrology map. Even if the stream is going, I should still see the uh, flood zones where the shadow of the stream is on the FEMA map. But I'm not going to go all the way into the woods. I'm kind of scared today. at night walking around in the dark it's kind of scary it doesn't scare me in the morning though Because I know everyone's sleeping, but at this time of night, I know people are always up. They're chilling out in their houses, and um, if they see me walking around, they're gonna be like, "Oh!" And I don't want to encounter anyone either. Doing something strange in the dark. So stick to main lighted paths. Just makes good sense. Plus, you see all these um, blunts, Philly blunts packages, like grape flavored cigars that they stuff with marijuana piled up in certain spots down there. So, people might be hanging out and smoking a blunt. I don't want to bother them. They should enjoy it until. should enjoy it until uh, Joe Biden has banned grape-flavored cigars and menthols.
imagine that turning into some contraband item. It's like, I got the grape flavor, man. That's kind of funny. So, what else we got? turn an expression or code that you write into machine code. But it doesn't necessarily know if it'll ever terminate or what's going to happen to it. Recursive complexity. So we get into this whole complexity theory, levels of complexity. And at what point can you express a Turing machine? And I think it's recursive complexity. So the fact that you can add a certain complexity, create a machine that can prove or disprove a theory or go into infinite loops and hide the fact that it'll do so escape detection it's a pretty powerful statement about how expressive a language is I'm just thinking about my experiences with a compiler and with complicated structures. could translate programs, I suppose, into distributed code.
and um, there's all types of distributed algorithms and problems as well. There's lots of math. There's the Byzantine general's problem. is you don't know what system might be taken over, who might be the traitor. Who might be corrupted and not? And um, there's already these smart contracts, and there's languages for them. And they talk about compiling stuff to go there. So. first gut feel, feeling is that there's different levels of abstraction going to be difficult to just pick up some program and get it to run distributed parallel compilers and distributed compilers. I guess they've been researched for many years. And um, it's not trivial. None of this is trivial. I guess we have to be able to look at these different smart contracts and compile them, decompile them, try to understand them. And people have talked about using Telegram as a system for execution, the tone. I did think today or yesterday I was thinking 
I need to work on making things that are understandable to other people, not just myself. It was a real click. Like how much of my notes, my writings, my podcasts are just incomprehensible to a third party. Don't make any sense. Are not accessible. Don't give enough background. Not enough context, not enough motivation. Even if you wanted to understand it, you couldn't. So I was thinking about some different aspects. One, trying to motivate people to say, why would you want to hear about this? Two, giving them enough information in case they do want to, but they don't know anything about the background, to give them a background on it. And three, explaining it clearly enough and repeating yourselves enough. And I guess that just raises the cost of the explanation, but maybe that's just the cost of doing business. Maybe that's the necessary cost that you need to be understood. Another thing, I could just walk in my own neighborhood in circles, but everyone's got these, um, these ring devices, and everyone knows me in the hood, so that's why I'd rather walk somewhere else, because the chance of someone knowing me is lower, even if they have me on their ring. Like, I'm just walking up, here's a ring right here. It's like, hello, ring. Greetings, NSA. And I suppose it's good. And I suppose it's also bad. Like, it's good to have all these watching eyes. Oh, there's fireworks. Is that where that smoke is coming from? Maybe it's a football game. There was a big ton of police cars out today. emergency mode. So I guess we're going to look at um, some of these prime number algorithms in different languages and uh, look at the assembly code generated by them. 
Well, look at first the runtime. I think the sieve of Arathenes is actually used as a benchmark for compilers and for systems. break it down into assembly instructions. It's just hilarious. And um, in the end, all these smart contracts are just running code. They're just running assembly language in the end. Or something that's compiled into it. So instead of running on some virtual machine, I mean, that's the question. Do we want to run on a virtual machine or not? And my gut reaction is, virtual machine can't be faster but on the other side a virtual machine can be fast and can give you those primitives and bits that are needed but in the end just a question of abstraction and if you break down these layers of abstraction and solve them and resolve them See, this is kind of gets into the question of what is a program's code? What, it's re what is its representation in the computer for execution? And how is the intent of the program expressed? Like, how is it translated? And what information does the CPU use? These are just different levels of communication at some level. And how much information how much information bed at runtime. And this gets into this whole question of what is runtime, what is compile time.
what are the different levels of representation so Like in my algorithm, I use a dictionary and I put the um, prime numbers. Well, I put the multiples in the dictionary to build up my factor table. But is that the best representation? And can we find a lower level algorithm, a data structure? in C++, for example, or assembly language. That's more well-suited. kind of observations that we do in math that are exploited in proofs like some of the basic ones about what maybe we didn't talk about this before again but I was looking into what numbers can be added together to create uh, primes. And um, there are primes that are the result of adding all the previous primes together. And I think 127, here, I dug this one up. Twenty-seven is the smallest prime that can be written as the sum of the first two or more odd primes. So one twenty-seven is three plus five plus seven plus eleven plus thirteen plus seventeen plus nineteen plus twenty-three plus twenty-nine. And I wrote a little program that will add x number of consecutive primes together to look for other primes. 
And I suppose the next thing we need to do is to add together any of the um, previous primes, maybe skip one. So make the combination of all the primes. Right? So for every prime, including just the one, and I guess we have to do it recursively, and for n primes, n number of times. get into quite the number of additions. But these are things that we can do with a computer that we can't do by hand and that I don't think um, the old mathematicians would have spent their time on. And the uh, scooter girl does live in our neighborhood where she was visiting someone. Just saw her scoot out of our hood. Bet she's not from around here. She's probably like some kid from another city or town. She's like, it's okay, Mom and Dad, I got a scooter. I can scoot around. I don't need a car. There's definitely some smoke in the air. So... <clears throat> But adding up consecutive primes together does allow you to reach a, uh, a prime. And then the Mersenne primes are the um, I think primes raised to a number plus one that give you another prime. That's for finding primes. But what I'm talking about is for reaching them. Now I guess we could do a subtractive method. We could take the prime and subtract any of the other primes multiple times. And then do we get to zero or do we get to another prime? So the game would be, given all the primes, Select one randomly and then add or subtract a prime from them until you get to zero or you reach another prime. What patterns would you reach?
I guess we could just start with subtract, not add. Or start with zero and add. What does it mean to be random? Like, how do you truly give a random number? Because you don't. So you might as well just do all of them. And I was thinking, if you have the option, if you repeat a process for each prime number, one time for each of the previous steps, one time for each number, you would include the possibility of the number zero or one, so it would skip that particular basically subtract or add this prime or not so you have both options and you iterate over that that would give you the um, the option of skipping so instead of definitely adding each one together and I already have the code for doing that we would optionally either add or not add, creating a branching statement. And just the pattern of that branching creates a whole selection question. Do we include this prime or not? Like a bit mask. And the bit mask is 2 to the n. So if you have n primes, you have 2 to the n bits if it's turned on or off. And you could iterate over all those bits first and generate those and then use that to select which one you turn on and off. Luckily, the next number in the sequence could be tacked on. So you would create this bit, this tree of sums. You would have two to the n sums. Every for every prime, you would add to it or not add to it. And then evaluate if it's if it hit a prime in that level or not. Could be a neat looking tree structure. I might have to implement this. start off with two branches, one left, one right, 
and it's like, do you include the number two or not? And then do you include three? But did you skip two or not? So it'll be two plus three or two or three or zero. Four options and then you'd add the five. And this would definitely hit all the primes. It would also hit all the other numbers. You'd use that for calculating the primes as well. That'd be more complicated. We could definitely use this for evaluating X number of levels. And speaking about algorithms, you got some other cool algorithms like heaps, where you can allocate an array of numbers ahead of time. And you know exactly what position each number would be in and what its meaning is. No three, no two, no three, two and no three, but we already had two and no three already, so we can actually skip that one. We already had no two, so we could skip that one. So actually, it's going to be a sparse tree growing to one side. I'll try it out. I'll let you know what's happening. Okay, guys, I'm home. It was nice chatting. Feed the fungus, feed the fungus, feed the fungus.